Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome a prolific author and icon whose work has profoundly impacted the queer zeitgeist. Through various novels and memoirs such as Black Wave, How to Grow Up in Valencia, she's helped a generation discover the queer experience, all the while discovering herself. More than just an author, she's also one of the founders of the groundbreaking Sister Spit performance group, creator of the acclaimed Drag Queen Story Hour, and she recently completed her directorial debut as a filmmaker. Please welcome acclaimed author, creator, and punk icon, Michelle T. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be a punk icon. You know, I believe you are. I mean, that's all I ever wanted growing (laughs) up. That's all I ever wanted, so... Well, we are here today on Dead for Filth to make it official if it hasn't been official already. Uh, So, you know, now that you're here, why don't we just start things off? Okay, cool. The same way we start off every show, the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want, but it's like, why do you think horror connects to people? Why does horror connect with you? What, what's the draw to the genre? But why horror? I, I feel like we are these like emotional beings and we have this vast emotional landscape. Um, and it, how, do, how do I explain it? I think about this a lot because I love to be scared and I trip out on that. I'm just like, why do I? I love this so much. Like, being going to like, you know, universal horror, horror nights, Halloween horror nights and just getting chased, you know, by a, you know, an acting student with a chainsaw. It's like right. <laughs> my total dream. Like I'm, I'm probably it's like peak happiness all year, you know. And I just think it's like we we get to experience this whole range of our emotions that normally we can't experience or if we are really experiencing them, they are unpleasant and it's terrible. Right. Right. But to have these safe spaces to get to um, experience this particular range of really heightened emotion where we get flooded with neurochemicals and all this other stuff. It's just I don't know. I'm wired for it for sure. I mean, I guess not everybody is. A lot of people don't like how that feels. That's right. A, yeah, it's interesting. And of course, uh, you know, the real horror to me of Universal Horror Nights is the, the wait in line. If uh, For yeah. anyone who's ever gone, it's, they're like, welcome to the experience of fear. Lines, line, line duration, two hours. Totally. <laughs> you know, I went to Not Scary Farm the year before, mm-hmm. and it was sort of like the consolation prize because I didn't get my shit together to get to Universal. But I think I like Not Scary Farm better. You know what I like about Not Scary Farm is I feel like it leans more into sort of the haunted houses of our youth. Yes. If that, if that makes sense. It really does. Be- yeah. Because there's, I mean, there's even a sort of family element with the Elvira show yeah. and they've got that whole thing where it's like, you know, there's that nostalgia of going into uh, those kind of creatively built haunted houses yes. in middle America where like the walls are painted black and there's a strobe light and that's all the 4-H yeah. club could afford. And somebody's you know? like just jumping out at you and basically saying boo. Yeah, it, it, it's your math teacher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also like, it's kind of like the designer imposter haunted house also because like they don't have rights right. to things. So they had like the fake Stranger Things house when I went there where it was like the fake upside down and <laughs> they couldn't say that that's what it was but it was very much that the, that aesthetic. Whereas if you go to Universal, it's very slick. It's like it is The Walking Dead. It right. is, you know, like American Horror Story, which yeah. is also great. But I just, I, I have a fondness in my heart for, 
for the knockoff haunted houses of Not Scary Farm. Join us for the shuffling fear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Uh, but that's great. So did you connect with the genre early on then? Were you a horror fan growing up? I was. Yeah, I really was. I loved one of my first memories of it was being probably, I don't know, around six or seven. And I, we would go, me and my, I grew up in Massachusetts and my uh, grandparents would, we do this big road trip every year with my sister and we'd go to Florida to go to Disney World. But we'd get to go to see some other stuff too. And my grandfather really loved like um, Ripley's Believe It or Not and those kind of places and like the wax museums. Oh, I right. remember the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum had a chamber of horrors that you could go through. And I made my grandfather take me through it twice. Like, I loved it. It was like a big family story. They're like, what a freak. She wanted to go through it twice, you know? <laughs> so I just loved it. And I loved, like, I don't know, like, USA Network growing up where you could see weird horror movies. I don't know if it was USA. I think it was. But, like, kind of offbeat channel, cable channels that would show, like, Sleepaway Camp or Tourist Trap or Motel Hell, like getting to see these weird cult, you know, which I later grew up and you realize like, oh, other people saw them too. And there are these kind of cult faves, but you think you're the only one right. watching them. Well, I don't think today's generation realizes because USA Network was very pivotal for me as well, yeah. is that because it's a very slick network now with like, you know, original programming and things. Yeah. But back in the day, they sort of had to do something that set them apart from the other cable channels and they used to program a lot of weirdness yes and a lot of the horror movies that I saw for the first time were on uh, USA Up All Night which was yeah. a Friday Saturday night program this is probably what I'm thinking of it was Up All Night and then there was Night Flight too USA That's Night right. Flight for music which is like turned me on to so much great music yeah, because Night Flight used to program more of the underground, like Bauhaus. Yes. Good, yeah, it was stuff that you weren't seeing on MTV. Yeah, totally. Um, and the, my favorite movie of all time is the movie Times Square. And it, I saw it when I was 12 years old on, like, at midnight when I was, like, up watching late night TV on USA. And it totally changed my life. Oh, yeah, and that's yeah. become sort of a cult yeah, favorite. Yeah, it should. I, I, you know, it's one of my things in life is to kind of like let people know that this movie exists. You know, I wrote an essay about it that's gonna, in my next book that's coming out. Well, because our listeners love underground favorites, tell me about Times Square. What is this? Oh my God, Times Square is this like butch femme teenage runaway romance of on the streets of New York City circa like 1979. So it's like this girl who's like dad wants to, he's a politician who wants to clean up Times Square in, in like a foreshadowing like, you know yeah, right like of the doom to come yeah yeah, yeah. um so uh, that's his platform but she sees him being a hypocrite and being like you know racist and all this other stuff so she finally starts kind of speaking out against him and he throws her in the loony bin where she meets this street kid this street punk who's living squatting in like you know abandoned warehouses on the chelsea piers and they like run away together basically and then the whole city is like looking for this girl this politician's oh sorry um daughter and they're being championed in this sort of sleazy, self-serving way by um, a radio DJ, a late night radio DJ called Johnny LaGuardia, played by Tim Curry. Super, super hot in it. Mm. And um, he kind of gets between them in this creepy way. And Oh, it's so good. And the, the music is so good. And it has got a great soundtrack with like Patti Smith and the Pretenders and Gary Newman. And it's just awesome movie. Well, Tim Curry and uh, kind of culty appeal and soundtrack aside, what I really liked about your description of it is at the very top you use the phrase butch femme it is butch femme their dynamic is so like nikki is a, is a little street tough and pammy has like there's a scene where like pammy's sitting at nikki's feet while nikki's reading her 
her song. She's all, I'm a damn dog. And she's just like, it's poetry, Nikki. It's just like this classic sort of nurturing femme, you know, bipolar butch kind of like. Well, and the reason I zeroed in on your use of that phrase, though, is mm-hmm. because this is a movie so you connected with very early. And mm-hmm. that was a movie that meant a lot to you because you saw it at the right moment. And one of the things we talk about a lot on Dead for Filth is sort of this cult or horror or, you know, underground film connection to our inherent queerness. Yeah. And do you think, since it's been introduced into the conversation, that this attraction towards films of other is intertwined with the queer experience? Do you think there's a reason we gravitate towards these movies more than most? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, a great, queer response to queer phobia and violence against queers and just you know the world makes us into monsters and a really great response to that is for us to own that and be like yeah we are fucking monsters you know (laughs) run away before we eat your children you know that's always been one of my favorite kind of queer coping mechanisms and it has a lot it has a huge affinity with horror right it's like we we are the monsters like we see deeper into what might have made that monster, you know? Right. But we also connect with the outsider in a sympathetic way, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So let's look at the early days, the, the Michelle who's discovering uh, Times Square on night flight. Uh, did you always know early on that storytelling was where it was at for you? Did you always want to be a writer? I did. I wanted to be a writer as early as like second or third grade is when I remember like, reading an interview with Judy Bloom, whose books I read way too early. I, I tried to check, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, out of the library. And the, the librarian was like, it's just too old for you. I was like in second grade. Wow. And I was so offended. I was like, excuse me? Do you know my reading level? And I went home and told my mother, the librarian won't let me take this book out. So my mother wrote me a note. I got to take it out. And then I read like right away on the first page, Margaret's like looking it like Playboy and looking at boobs and I was so scandalized. I shut it and I brought it right back. I said, you were right. It's too advanced for me. But um, but I loved Judy Bloom and I read this interview with her about, you know, how how is she such a good writer? And she said she just remembers everything. She tries to make sure to remember everything. And I was like, OK, that's what I have to do. I have to remember everything because I knew that I wanted to do that. Like I took to books really passionately and I knew it was what I wanted to do. I like that early on you had your first experience, though, of someone trying to restrict art. Yeah. Because what I don't think that the world at large realizes is that the second you try and tell someone they shouldn't have something, it sparks an interest. And especially for creative kids, it makes you want it more. Oh, for sure. So even though you took that book back, Mm -hmm. you fought to get it in the first place. Yeah, I was very insulted because I was very proud of like what a reader I was, you know. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There were other things, too. Like, I remember my father was worried I was reading too much. It was like a concern. Wow. I know. In what world? I mean, (laughs) yeah, in the world of Chelsea, Massachusetts, circa, you know, 1975, I guess, 76. Um, But they had to be like, do you you do know that it's, you know, fantasy, right? It's not real. I was like, yeah, I got it, you know. Um, But yeah. And then I I was always having things taken away from me. Um, I remember like. I got in trouble for watching like Dracula on TV and uh, like the the Frank Langella Dracula because it was oh. like too old for me and it was on and I got in trouble for, I remember my mother like grabbed my Motley Crue records and like read the lyrics and hid them under the couch. Nice try. It's not a lot of places to hide things in my house. So <laughs> I got them back. But there was always this like, 
this trying to take things away from me, my outfits, not letting me out of the house and what I was wearing, getting sent home from school or having my mother called to bring me another outfit that happened. So I imagine that just made you want to rebel more. It's funny because I didn't really feel like I was rebelling. I mean, it definitely pissed me off. And so then it did give it this edge. But I like that edge wasn't there initially. Like I was just doing what I thought was cool. Right. You know what I mean? I was wearing the things I thought looked great. Like I was like, I look amazing. And they're like, you look psychotic. Go in your room and put on the teddy bear sweater. And I was like, no, you know, so then it kind of like it's really funny. They kind of created a more rebellious attitude because they were they were constantly censoring me or trying to control me. And I didn't take well to that. But if they had just like been like, oh, my God, you look so you look like the princess of death. You look amazing. Go out and have fun. Like everything would have been chill. Yeah. It's funny because uh, I frequently tell stories about how my parents, hi, mom and dad, uh, (laughs) would they very rarely censored things. I'm more often cen- cool. censored myself. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like probably in a way a genius parenting technique because there was very little anything that I would be like, oh, no, I'm going to like, I'm pushing buttons because I'd be like, okay, whatever. Like the one thing I, I remember them kind of trying to draw a line in the sand for was basic instinct. <laughs> and I, like now later we are, we all are missed. We can't remember why. My mom's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that's interesting. I think sometimes if you just sort of roll with it, uh, it doesn't feel as as counter-establishment. Right, yeah. And it's like, I, I mean, and I was counter-establishment, increasingly so, as I sort of started to make sense of the world around me. But um, initially, like, a lot of it was play and aesthetics and creativity, you know? Right. Yeah. So do you remember the first time that you officially leaned into the world of writing? Like you knew from second grade that you wanted to write, but when mm-hmm. was that transitional point where you were like, I can do this? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I wrote all through my youth. I wrote poems and I started a school newspaper and um, I started zines when I was a little bit older and short stories I was writing. And then when I moved to San Francisco in 1993, I knew I'd had this sort of like break with my family and was estranged from my family. Um, I broke up with a girlfriend who was like, had been a bad relationship. I sort of just didn't know what I was going to do. And I just sort of went to San Francisco only knowing one person. And I was like, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to fall in love with girls. And like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Right. And so lucky me when I got there, there were girls. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, there was a, there was a, this great, sort of spoken word scene that was just starting up in all of the bars and cafes throughout the city. And it was completely democratic. Anyone could walk into any bar, you know, some night of the week, all bars hosted one of these open mics. You could just jump up and read your poem. And I found it so thrilling that there was an audience like ready made for me that I could just do this. All I had to do was write and I'd been writing off and on, but not knowing what to do with it because I didn't understand like, well, how did a person become a writer? I didn't go to college you know, the only books that were in my house were like Stephen King, Mass Market Horror, Jacqueline Suzanne, you know, right. it's like I just didn't understand how the world of publishing worked. But I understood I could jump on a stage and read a poem, have an effect on the audience, get immediate feedback and also become a fan of all these other writers who were up there doing that, too. And we all started making our own little chat books and trading them. And it was a real scene. And I feel so lucky to be a part of it. And um. And that's really how I started taking my writing seriously. So for you, the world of performance is very tied into your identity as a writer. Absolutely. 
even the prose that I wrote, um, like a lot of the chapters of Valencia started as little short vignettes that were written to be read out loud at Sister Spit when Sister Spit was a weekly open mic. I always Mm -hmm. wanted to have something to share each week. And so I was writing these little stories. I kind of stopped writing poems and wanted to tell like more of the story. And, um, And then those became Valencia. Now, at the beginning of your novel, Black Wave, you talk a little bit about the changing scene of San Francisco. There's a narrative in mm-hmm. there about how these places that used to be performance spaces started going away. Yeah. Has there been, do you feel, a shift in spaces for artists who are looking to do that? Do we no longer have that availability that we once did? Um, well, you know, I haven't lived in San Francisco for the past two years, but when I left, I mean, we had already, they'd already all gone away and not very many sprung up in their place. Rent is out of control there, you know? Right. So, you know, you can't just, you know, in the nineties people would, you know, rent a little storefront and live in the back and have performances in the front. And it's like, nobody was really doing that anymore in San Francisco. Um, you know, here in LA, there's more, I'm still pretty new and trying to figure it out. I definitely know of some spots, but it does seem like overall we need more venues. We need more accessible venues for people to put shows on that aren't like that are somewhat professional, but not like so professionalized that you can't get in because you need to draw like 500 people. Right. You know, which I've seen uh, is is an issue with some of the storytelling spots in our city anyway, where they'll do them. But there's like a capacity, like if you can't fill it. Yeah. But. That doesn't really help starting artists. No, it doesn't. My, I, um, I do a, a monthly comedy open mic, a no bro comedy open mic called Clown Town. Um, and we're looking for a spot right now, a new spot that is more set up for performance. And we're definitely having that. Like there's some big joints, but we don't we can't fill it, at least not right now. And right. then the smaller places just really are too small and they're not quite equipped for performance. So we need some sort of like middle middle ground space. So we're kind of hunting around for that right now. Well, in your discussion of how performance helped inform your writing and vice versa, you mentioned uh, the creation of Sister Spit. Mm -hmm. Now, Sister Spit is a group you co-founded. Yes. uh, And began as a weekly event in San Francisco. Yeah, it was a weekly open mic. And then you kind of took it on the road and it became sort of a global thing for a minute there. So could you tell me a little bit about the creation of Sister Spit and that journey? Yeah, it's like one of the best things I ever did in my life. I'm so happy about it. Um, It started... um, from a conversation with me and my co-founder, Cindy Anderson, who was a spoken word artist new to San Francisco, wanted to start an all-girl open mic. I thought that's genius because um, all of the open mics were just filled with like dudes pretending to be Bukowski. And, you know, <laughs> I like to get drunk and fight with them, but I also recognize like the city was probably filled with girls who like don't want to fight with drunk men to get their poetry across. So um, I met with her just to kind of give her names of really great female poets she should work with. And she said, oh, you want to do it with me? So we did it um, for, I think, two years every week. And, um, you know, it was mostly amazing. We definitely would have lulls when we would go, oh, should we stop doing this? And then it would pick back up again and we'd be like, awesome. So just during one of those lulls, there were too many people coming in like, doing like Ani DeFranco covers on their acoustic guitars, like not what I signed up for, (laughs) you know, like not, not at all. Um, 
So we kind of let it go. And in the meantime, I was playing drums for a band. We went on tour and our band sucked, but tour was awesome. I mean, I had no money. I was sleeping on strangers floors through the Pacific Northwest and like meeting people and seeing new towns. And, you know, as somebody who was really broke and didn't have a driver's license, I was like, this is my way to like see America. So when I came back, I was like, you know, like my crappy band went on tour. I bet all of these literally amazing writers could we do a better job with it so um we did we did it we took two vanfuls of writers who had been people who frequented our open mic over the years and we took them across the country and it was fantastic you drove all over the country in a van yeah we had one van that we fundraised for and it it died on the mississippi alabama border at midnight on a friday night um never to be recovered the the engine cracked is the van still there Yeah. I mean, they sold it for parts. Yeah. We left it there. (laughs) And then we had to like throw away so much stuff. We people abandoned the ridiculous things people brought on their tour, though. Like there was like a tennis racket. So I was like, why did you thought you were going to play tennis on tour? But um, just crazy stuff. And we loaded everybody into the other van, which had been borrowed from somebody's stepmother. And um, and then we got a cargo van. And so we finished the tour in like a budget cargo van with no seats in the back. It was pretty. This is a movie itself. (sighs) You know, I've always wondered how to do it as a movie and I always felt a little bit unsure but then when I saw this is so funny when I saw Magic Mike 2 because it's a road trip movie right like they're not the movie I was expecting you to say (laughs) at all oh my god but the Magic Mike movies are so fun but I was like oh my god they're like they're like sister spit they're just like male strippers but like that's you know it's like basically the same thing so I feel like I understand it made me understand a bit more how how I could make that into a movie but yeah it was phenomenal and we went on to do it a couple more times, we always had van problems because we were always broke and buying the cheapest vans we could. And inevitably something would happen to them on the road. Right. And people cheated on their girlfriends and started new relationships and had affairs and got messy and got sober or didn't get sober. Or, you know, it just was a lot of insanity. Um, we stopped it in probably 2000. And then I picked it back up in 2007 because I recognized there was like a new generation of young queer writers. And I kept meeting these people thinking, God, if I did Sister Spit again, they'd be so great to bring. And um, I published an an anthology called Baby Remember My Name, New Queer Girl Writing. Mm -hmm. And basically the book tour for that became the the reemergence of Sister Spit. And from that, we did end up touring Europe. We did a European tour. It was insane. Everyone who was over 30 canceled when it became clear that we were going to be like sleeping in squats and making no money. (laughs) And so it was me and a bunch of 20 year olds and um, sleeping in squats throughout Europe. Um, And, you know, eventually I parted ways with Sister Spit. I handed it to the next generation. So now it's run by um, this uh, writer, Juliana Delgado Lopera. And they're on tour right now, actually. They're like heading into New Mexico as we speak. So van problems aside, (laughs) you've traveled around the world several times with this group. Are there any like standout outrageous moments from life on the road that just stick in your mind above all else? Did you have like a weird encounter? Did, you know, you get held up at a border like whatever? Um, We got held up at lots of borders. Um, We had lots of strange encounters. (laughs) It's like, when didn't we? Like that was the norm. Um, we I'm trying to think of some. I mean, one thing that was really incredible for me, um, we did a show in Provincetown and Cookie Mueller's son, Max Mueller, was in the audience. And I mean, I'm such an enormous Cookie Mueller fan, as were lots of people on the tour. And he was like, my mom would have loved you guys. And that was just like, ha, ah, like the <laughs> biggest, best 
you know, um, accolade ever. Um, we, let me see, we, I mean, we started this crazy bar fight at Charlie's Kitchen, which is this like Harvard Square, Cambridge eatery where, um, there were all these circus performers there and we just felt an immediate kinship to them. And so my very queer tour, which had like genderqueer people on it and just started like hanging out and we had Lynn Breedlove from Tribe 8 fame with us. And he, I think like whipped out his dildo and one of the one of the circus people took out his teeth and filleted a Limpery Loves dildo at Charlie's. We were very, very drunk. And in the corner was some sort of mass hole who started screaming, my girlfriend's a Catholic. She should not have to see this. He got really mad. And then I took a bottle of Grey Poupon that was on the table and threw it at him and it smashed against the wall. And we all got kicked out and we thought we were going to get beat up by this guy. It was like this crazy sort of mini riot happened. And and then I got separated from everybody and was lost and didn't know where the van was. And then I found the van. And so I, I was very, very drunk. And I was wearing a sequined rainbow tube top. I remember this very vividly. And I went into the van because I had the keys, even though I don't, don't drive. And I, I leaned on the horn and was screaming, Cindy, because I knew that she must be close to the van. We were parked outside a Harvard professor's house. And he leaned out and he was furious. And he said, you know you better get out of here right now or I'm calling the cops. And I said, this is my van. And he said, I don't believe it's your van. And I had nothing to prove that it was my van. And, um, and then the cops came. The cops thought I was on speed because I was so crazy, but I was just drunk. And um, they all, didn't arrest me, which, because I'm white, it has to be the only reason why, because I was so out of control. And then um, eventually we found that uh, Cine and the others were hanging out with the clowns, the circus people in their circus house across the street okay first wow yeah uh that was just like normal <laughs> that was normal because like i'm an alcoholic and at the time i was drinking so all kinds of crazy shit happened and you sort of love it and you're like right. look you're seeking it really on some level um remember at the top of the show when we were like discussing the certainty of your punk rock uh icon status i, I think this <laughs> this tale alone it did it yeah i mean <laughs> That's great. Uh, you also used a word that I just wanted to cycle back around to because I instantly became fascinated. You said mass hole. Is that a Massachusetts asshole? Yeah. Yeah. Of which there are enough to have a specific term for them. Yeah. So it's not like uh, it's just a term for like a regional bro in the New England area. Yeah, basically. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Although there are girl bros, too. There are girl mass. Girls can be mass holes. OK. And frequently are. Yeah. How interesting. I know. So you probably traveling the country got uh, all the different regional mass holes that you got to see them. Different, different yeah. uh, expressions of broness yeah. and assholery region by region, for sure. For uh, sure we did. I was lucky enough to see Sister Spit um, when you came to the Andy Warhol Museum. Oh, and that was in our next generation, sort right. of. That wasn't the 90s uh, out of control. That was a little bit more reined in. Yeah, I remember it was a great night. Uh, I re you did a reading, uh, Justin Vivian Bond, oh, who's yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and Aaron Markey sang a song about labia. Yes. Uh, I will always remember. I thought it was a great time. Thank you. That was an awesome lineup. Um, it was so much fun just like curating the lineup. So it was one of my favorite things to do. You know, one of the good things about kind of cleaning up our act a little bit and professionalizing is that we got to bring people like Justin Vivian Bond, you know, who was still by all means, slumming with us for sure. But like that, that she came at all. And we had um, Dorothy Allison on part of that tour also, which was really spectacular. Yeah. And through it all, you're writing. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it was, was memoir. Yeah. 
What is it about the memoir format that speaks to you as opposed to fiction? Honestly, I think it's mental illness. I think it's a particular kind of mental illness that is called hypographia. And um, there's this really amazing book called The Midnight Disease that's written by a woman who's like a Harvard neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. And she had an experience of hypographia after a trauma, after I think a miscarriage, where she suddenly felt deeply compelled to write prolifically about her own experience. Right. And I've always been a writer and I've always been drawn. Well, I wasn't when I was younger. I didn't necessarily think to write about my own experience. I was definitely looking outside of my world for things to write about. But when I came to San Francisco and started writing in earnest, I had just experienced kind of a lot of trauma, like in my family falling apart, coming out as queer, like all these things that had elements of trauma. And I felt just so on fire to tell my story. Right. And, um, and so I did. And I've not stopped since. Like, it really feels like a compulsion in a funny way. And having learned about this hypographia thing and, you know, knowing that I am someone with a bit of like a screwy mental chemistry, like like most creative people that I know, certainly most writers. Right. I just honestly think it might be a form of mental illness. I'm really grateful that I have it. But um, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, because I ask because I notice even in your fiction. Yeah. There's, for example, Black Wave is billed as fiction. Right. But the lead's char- the lead character's name is Michelle. Yeah. And a lot of the things you describe. Happened. Fi- yeah, I can, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Like, I, I could, without even ever confirming with you, I'm like, I guarantee this happened. <laughs> so, yeah. I didn't have sex with Matt Dillon, sadly. But he did. <laughs> he did come into my bookstore and, like, do that manhandling of my tattoos that kind of men do and women have tattoos they think they can like touch your touch you like they reach out and they're like oh I like your tat and it's like super offensive unless it's Matt Dillon doing it in which case it's like completely welcome and fine well I guess this begs the question since we always talk about movies do you have a favorite Matt Dillon movie um I really love Over the Edge basically any movie where Matt Dillon dies in a hail of bullets is a great movie so like <laughs> Over the Edge is fantastic yeah, it's his first movie I know 1979 yeah. why I just like was able to rattle off the year like I'm, I'm really IMDb, impressed but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not his most well-known movie you no. know um but yeah that and like he also dies in a hail of bullets in the outsiders I mean he's so hot in the outsiders he's like the ultimate asshole dude that you're just like oh god what's wrong with me that I love him but I do um and then and then drugstore cowboy yeah right? Gus Van Zandt yeah queer. fantastic yeah. movie he's just I just I have the same birthday as him I just feel like I just love him so much um you know the Matt Dillon movie. Speaking of things you see late night TV that leave an impression. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I remember seeing Rumblefish on oh. late night cable. Does he die in that one too, or is it Mickey Rourke dies in that one? Yeah, you know, I have to say, Essie Hinton, if you're listening, you're probably not. I am so sorry. I don't remember the name of Rumblefish. I remember the end of Rumblefish. I know. Because Somebody I certainly don't remember. Dies, yeah. Though, right? I'm gonna get an angry letter from someone on the oh, internet. Oh no! no I'm <laughs> I love Essie Hinton so much. I met her at the BEA, the Book Expo America. I was like walking by the booth for like University of Oklahoma Press and I saw they had a new Essie Hinton book and I I was doing this thing where I was just trying to scam free books you know all right. day and they're like well she's right there and I was like what <laughs> fully un- unprepared to meet Essie Hinton I was like words do not express I mean my book Black Wave like references the outsiders in the end of it where it's like basically how the outsiders begins with um the story, mm-hmm. right? And then it ends with Ponyboy writing the story, like writing the beginning of the book that you just read. And so I kind of had that in mind, right? Crafting 
Black Wave. Well, one of the joys of the show is I never really know where we're going to go. And I uh, am excited to actually talk about Essie Hinton briefly because <laughs> uh, what one thing I've always wanted to say about The Outsiders is what a perfect novel full of drag names. <laughs> right? Like every character, Cherry Valance. Oh my God, I know. Pop. It's so like, They all have like great drag names. They it's really wonderful. do. Um, well, I think that, you know, this was a book of these um male characters that were created by a 17-year-old girl. And to me, they're all trans guys or butches. Like, they just possess that. Like, in the 90s, there was, like, this great sort of, like, working-class masculinity that all these, like, butches and trans um, gender variant folks had in San Francisco. And it was super outsidery. I love that. Yeah. And another thing about Essie Hinton, which I think listeners will be particularly interested in, especially if you only know her for, like, Rumblefish or The Outsiders, is that Essie Hinton is a big fan of the horror genre. Oh, really? And has, in later years, written uh, several sort of genre-adjacent novels. But what's most interesting about Essie Hinton and something that I think will surprise a lot of listeners is that she is a mega huge super fan of the CW television series Supernatural to the degree. She tweets about it, right? That she secretly writes fan fiction about the show under a different name on the Internet. She has admitted it in interviews, but won't say what... Oh my Which ones? So, like, if you're out there reading like Sam and Dean fan fiction, it may be written by the author of The Outsiders. Oh my god, that is so fantastic! See, writers are such weirdos. I love that. Well, that's, it's, and it that. goes full circle to your like. We, we just, you know, writers exist in their own place mm-hmm, for real. Uh, and I love that. And speaking of writers that um, you have an affinity for, uh, I was going to get here eventually, but since we're talking about. Um, Lady Writers with Impact. You and I have had uh, several discussions about your affinity for the great Anne Rice. Oh, I love Anne Rice. I love Anne Rice. I, um, yeah, I mean, I was mesmerized by her vampire books when I was in high school. Right. I mean, I was absolutely sunken into the world. It just, I was, I was kidnapped, you know, I was very passionate about them. Mm -hmm. I would carry them around with me. Um, I would read them and reread them. I read them out of order. I read Lestat before interview. So I, I always, Lestat always had my heart because I understood him, but my other friends were like, Lestat's horrible. Poor Lewis. I was like, fuck Lewis, you know, like (laughs) throw a pair of Lewis. Like Lestat is, it's all about Lestat to me. So, um, I met, I went to a signing, an Anne Rice signing when I was a teenager um, in Boston. I was really excited about it. I had her sign the inside of my black velvet cape because I was goth. That's what I wore. And um, nobody was really there. It was before she was as huge as she is now. And I kind of couldn't handle that we had such easy access to her because I was such a crazy fangirl. And so, you know, she signed our books and then me and my friends went back outside and we're like, gosh, she's just like sitting in there. Like we should go, we should ask her a question. What should we ask her? We said, okay, let's ask her what Lestat's band sounds like. So we went in and we're just like, oh, we have a question for you. Like, what does Lestat's band sound like? And she says, this is the eighties, right? It's probably like 87. And she said, well, not like Bon Jovi. We're like, okay, great, great, cool, cool. Yeah, totally never like Bon Jovi, right? Um, and she said, I was listening to The Doors a lot when I was writing it. We're like, okay, that's cool, The Doors. I didn't really know them that much, but I was like, he's kind of sexy, leather pants. All right, you yeah. know. Yeah. I can see it. Mm-hmm. She was really nice to us. Um, I just I just love her. Uh, I can definitely see Lestat's band being a Doorsy kind of band. Um, right? I like that you identif- identified with Lestat. Uh, 
I think that I'm an Armand kind of guy. Ooh, I like Armand. You know why? Yeah. Because Armand does his own thing. This is why. <laughs> this is why Armand is a, the vampire I appreciate. Louis and Lestat have like some drama, and he was right. like, "No thanks." It's really true. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "I don't know what's going on with you guys, but yeah, it's totally not for me. I'm gonna be over here with the theater kids." Oh my god! Leave me alone. <laughs> I loved. There's that part. I can't remember which one, which book it's in, but they're talking about like when they're first bonding, like like Lestat and um and and Louis, and how they're like. Like, it's the golden hour. They talk about how it's the golden hour when they just understand everything. I think they're drinking wine or something, and and then they're like, oh, the golden hour's passed. And it passes, and then they're not as connected. And I, I felt like I really understood that as a little teenage goth alcoholic that was really looking for intensity and connection, and I would just, like, find it in these sort of drunken moments with people, and then it, the golden moment would pass, and you're like... Oh, that's an interesting correlation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned your years as a goth. Yes. Uh, they're always with me. They're always, well, they never go away. No, they sure don't. Because night always is around the corner. Yes, night always falls. It's true. Uh, so that gives us an opportunity to fast forward a little bit. Because this conversation with about Anne Rice uh-huh. and about your, your goth history yeah. sort of leads us right to the gates of your most recent project. Yeah. You just finished... Your directorial debut. That sounds so cool when you say it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Your short film, Release the Bats. Yeah. Which has some goth and Anne Rice... Uh, Ricean influences. It's, it's yeah. I think it, it wears its Ricean influence on its sleeve for sure. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the, that project and what it was like to finally become a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean it was really fantastic. Um, I moved to LA to try to you know claw my way into the industry like everybody else, and um, and of course it's you know frustrating, of course, famously. And I was I've been thinking for a little while that I should make something right. on my own, you know, and. Um, And I finally sort of just did it, you know, and it was such an amazing experience. Like I, I have a lot of friends who are involved in film in different ways and I just reached out to them and they were just on it and they were like, yeah, let's do this. Like nobody ever said, Michelle, really? You sure you want to do this? Do you know how expensive (laughs) it's going to be? Do you know what's going to eat your life? Like you have a child, like, you know, that your child's going to be like a short film widow, I mean, orphan for, and your wife will be a widow and, you know, all this other stuff. (laughs) Nobody said anything except like, yeah, that's a great idea. So, um, I was torn between a few different ideas of what to do. I always have a lot. And my wife was like, do the goth teen one. So she's the one who, who pushed me in that direction. And I'm glad she did. Cause, um, yeah, I, I wrote it. It's about a girl who is just put upon, a goth girl put upon by the world. She wants to make a goth movie, a vampire movie in the cemetery with her friends, all she wants. But like her mom is sort of drunk and a mess and she's getting bullied at school and her friends are getting menaced by skinheads. And so all of that comes into play. Um, yeah, and it's all inspired by when I was a, a teen goth, just like having a sort of unstable home life. And we were menaced by skinheads. Like they threw some of us in the Charles River. It was really scary. They um, they had a baby that was rumored to have a, a American flag tattoo, which I used in the film. Um, and me and my best friend, Peter Pizzi, who's an artist, Peter Anthony, he um, we would make films all the time, you know, and it was so much fun to do that. What happened to those childhood films? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, really, Peter was the one who had the camera, so they still exist. If you go to his um, Facebook page, Peter Anthony, and and go to his videos, there's one called Death Rock Camping Disaster. I love that title. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, I play, like, a whiny fag hag who's trying to, like, get with my, like, gay best friend. And then when he um, 
finally is just like, this is disgusting. Leave me alone and storms off. I get murdered by a other goth that we were bullying. Goes on, they go on a killing spree. It's pretty great. Um, we did that. We did one called like, I'm a, we're a happy family that we thought we were being influenced by John Waters, where it's like the mom is like sex craze. The dad is like wearing pantyhose and calling phone sex lines. And the brother and sister are in an SM relationship. There was no actual sex, just everything, like lots of illusions. And then we felt like really weird after we shot it. We were like 16, you know, we, like, we did another one called Clowny Clown Clowns, where because we found a bunch of clown costumes in my friend's attic. I was going to say, I hope this is about clowns. It was definitely yeah. about clowns. It was about like it was very inspired by Mommy Dearest, which we were all a big fan of. And so it was like these two kids who were, who had an abusive mom and then their toy clowns come alive and convince them to kill their mom. Mm-hmm. So I got to play a clown. So you've always had an interest in the world of film and film making oh uh, absolutely and I've been in my friends short films like I've done a little bit of acting in their short films and um you know it never felt accessible right but more recently it does and your novel Valencia yeah was adapted into a film yeah so I guess I'm just curious because this was something you were always interested in yeah why, when that project was moving ahead, did you have interest in, in, in directing any of that? Or did you not feel ready? I didn't feel ready. I didn't know how you did it right. um, at all, which isn't to say that I suddenly learned and did release the bats. I right. just sort of realized that, oh, like, I might never feel ready. I just need to do it and mm-hmm. trust that I'm a capable person right. and I have a vision and I know how to communicate. And those seem like the key things that you need as a director, right? Um but yeah, it's really funny. It's like I, um, I, I, I had met with a film person when I was trying to get my book Rent Girl made into a film. And she was like, can I just ask you a question? We were attached with a male director and she was like, why aren't you directing it? And I was like, oh, I can direct it. You know, like I just didn't think I don't know. I, I felt like uh, I didn't have the confidence. I felt like, oh, I but I didn't go to school and go to film school like I didn't. You know, none of that's ever stopped me with anything else. But for some reason, I think there's so much equipment and technical experience that I thought that I lacked, which would prevent me from being able to do it. And film, there's so much money involved in film. And I thought right. no one would trust me with anything with money. Um, well, I think the thing that's scary on the outside is that. When you're looking at how a film is made, it yeah. looks impossible. It does. And I do often say that every film is a miracle and that it's finished because now that you've seen the other side, all the other cogs and yeah. the, people, the people running around behind you to make sure that one thing works while you're just trying to get the shot. I mean, there are people working on my behalf doing things I don't even know what they were doing, you know? So, yeah. I, I mean, it was like really incredible that like everyone ha- has their their meaningful task in the project. Right. It was phenomenal. I mean, I'm used to being so DIY that I do everything. If I have a project, I do it all. Right. And so the experience of being involved in a creative process where I was actually supported by a team of people is mind-blowing. But coming from the world of a novelist who is DIY, and Mm -hmm. you are sort of in control of your destiny, at least until you get to your editor. Yeah. uh, Is that a little scary too to suddenly you know not be doing everything yourself because now you've got all of these people who are involved in the process when you're very used to just sitting down and doing it I mean that didn't come into play with release the bats that much I mean 
I guess, you know, we definitely had to cut some scenes because we just were running out of time where right. I just had my AD come up and be like, uh, you need to figure out a creative way to resolve this because we can't shoot the last two pages of your script. Right. And I was like, OK, I can do it, you know. But um, it comes into play more, I guess, like when I go on pitch meetings for different ideas that I have where they, get, you know, or if I'm developing a script with producers. But I'm not that attached. Like, I feel really comfortable with input and a certain amount of compromise. Um you know, as long as, like, the key elements were, like, you know, I'm, I'm working on developing a, a show with Condé Nast, and it's, like, the main character's queer, like, she needs to stay queer. You know, right. and, the, and the film needs to stay broke, because that's a really important component of, like, right. talking about, like, a queer working class experience. But all this other stuff can get moved around. Like, I think it's good to know, like, what the core kind of important kernel is, and then be really flexible about other stuff. Because otherwise, I don't know, it seems like really hard when you get too attached and you can't because right. the film and TV industry is like you're just whatever you start out with you're not going to end up with that at the end of it it seems like I mean is that true that is true you, I, you've I, actually produced things so yeah it is true uh, I think that there is an element of film that's always outside of your control yeah whether you know as the screenwriter which is my most frequent gig in the in the industry there is that element that though you build the foundation of the house other people are going to finish building it right so you have to be ready to give a bit of it away. Yeah. And that's where the collaborative process comes in. You work with other artists you trust, but they also bring their own selves to it. So that's sort of the joy. That's what you're saying. There's a bit of an excitement uh, to it as well. And then when you're working as a producer, you come in and you find someone whose work you like and you help them build their house too. Yeah. Uh, but it is collaborative and there is a chaos element. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, whether we want to admit it in this industry or not, that's left to the fate. Yeah. Um, which is a good segue. Speaking of the fates, <laughs> another thing that you have uh, really established your name doing, and you wrote a book about it, is interest in, in the world of Tarot. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Um, that's, I mean, I think that that's going to be of great interest to Dead for Filth listeners. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I started reading tarot cards when I was 15, when I was goth. You know, it's a mm -hmm. great... It's a great uh, goth hobby to have, you right. know, the tarot. And, um, you know, my best friend, Peter Anthony, who I made the films with when I was a teenager, he did too. So we just, you know, we were always reading cards and we were going to occult shops and taking road trips to Salem and all this other, you know, fun sort of witchy stuff. Right. And, yeah, I mean, the tarot... Um, I just started practicing it and I really loved the imagery and I loved that it created a story. You used them to piece together a story. You used these images as prompts for your intuition and then the story emerged and it was really fascinating to me. Um, I remember like I would practice on my family and my stepfather would be like, you know, you got to say something more like, uh, you know, I'm going to get some money or, you know, I'm going to, I'm like, but you're not going to get any money. Like, this is real. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I'm not like Miss Cleoing you here. Like, I'm actually trying to tell you like what your future holds or something. So you think uh, that the, the tarot also helps you in your writing because you can help see a story through that? Is that what you're I mean, or it's that I, the fact that, like that I possess the abilities of a storyteller also mm -hmm. lend themselves to reading, also being a competent tarot reader, maybe right. that I, I can have a knack for seeing a certain story or kind of being able to analyze, psychologically analyze dynamics and things like that and see, see psychological dynamics. They feel like they're a little related 
Um, but yeah, when I came to San Francisco, my first job, if you want to call it, that was just like reading tarot cards on the street. I right. was just like sitting on Hate Street, you know, reading tarot cards for donation because it was spiritual. So I couldn't charge money for it. Just <laughs> 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 stupid. Um, but yeah, so I had like, you know, street kids giving me like rocks and you know, cigarettes and stuff for readings and, and advice on how to get uh, food stamps, which actually was very helpful. And, um, and yeah, and since then I've like done it professionally here and there. Um, I'm always doing so many other things that I've never been able to really focus on making it more of a sort of stable career element, but I do, I do do readings, you know, right. I am a tarot reader for hire. Um, and you wrote a whole book about your engagement with the tarot. Yeah. It's uh, my most recent book. Um, it's called Modern Tarot. Well, uh, a friend of the show, uh, Josh Conkle, who was a previous guest, writer for a series of unfortunate events, the series. Oh, I remember so great. when I told him that we knew each other, he's very interested in, in the world of, of the tarot. And he said to me, he was like, she wrote the book. Oh. So this book has had impact for sure. I'm really glad. I mean, the thing is, is that the, the tarot, the market of tarot books was starved for something that was more contemporary right. and spoke in a, in a contemporary language and sort of called bullshit a little bit on the more archaic aspects of the tarot, which right. is like, you know, the heavily gendered, how everything is very heavily gendered um, or really straight or um super spooky and it's like you know it's it's really none of those things right. it's it's not that spooky it's just about our lives so yeah some people have some spooky things happen in their lives most of us our lives aren't quite that dramatic right. you know but do you think queerness brings an element to a read that other people who read normally wouldn't look for or see? Um, I think so, because it's ends up just kind of breaking it down into contemporary life, which is helpful for everybody. So it's sort of like, I mean, these cards have images of like war and, you know, all these sort of like major dramatic, like cin huge cinematic scenes. So it's like, well, how do you break that down into your daily life? You right. know, um, here in the United States, you know, we're probably you're not experiencing like war on your soil right now or, you know, what do these things mean? So um, I think in trying to break them down for queer people, it just breaks them down in general so that right. we can apply these like medieval imagery to our modern lives. Yeah. Well, from reading cards to reading for children, we've mentioned <laughs> this at the top of the show. One of the other things that you have been instrumental in uh, and served as the creator of is Drag Queen Story Hour, mm -hmm. which has gone nationwide. It's really insane how it's blown up. Yes. It's so cool. And much to the chagrin of some Fox News I know. correspondents. So talk to me a little bit about your vision of bringing drag from our gay bar lip sync night to the library. Oh gosh. Well, it was just, it's been a joy. Um, you know, I have a kid, I have a three-year-old. And so, you know, I started going to the library for story hours and, um, and they're, you know, they're fine. They're great. I love story hours. I love libraries. Um, but it was wild to just suddenly be in these really straight environments. I had a kid late in life. I'm super queer. All of my interactions are queer. My, all my social activities, queer, all my event seeking has been queer. So to suddenly be in these really straight environments was just different. And, um, and so of course I wondered like how, how could these events be queered up somehow, right? Um, I was living in San Francisco. I was running my nonprofit Radar Productions there. And we had to, I was applying for a grant 
the city gave out grants to do um, arts program in specific neighborhoods. And you had to say, like, what would you do? What was what's your point? So I grabbed the Castro and I said, we're going to queer the Castro because it's famously become so gentrified and so tame. And right. this influx of uh, families, you know, heterosexual families into the Castro has created friction among, you know, the fags who just are like, whatever, we want to have like our porn in the windows and all this, you know, there's been all this kind of like, oh, right. no, but what if the children see you know, a dildo in a window or something like that. It's so there's been this weird friction. So I'm like, well, what can we do? One of the ideas I had looking at the venues available, one is the Harvey Milk Branch Library. Um, and I was like, oh, we should just have like a queer story. To oh, we should have a drag queen do storytelling, obviously. Like who's the queerest of the queers are drag queens. Right. Right. So um, and just as a little aside, I had this I'd incubated this idea for like a decade because my good friend Tara Jepson was a nanny and she had this wonderful um, three-year-old kid, Finn, who she would nanny back in like the, 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 the zeros and they would come to North Beach where I lived and we'd hang out with Finn and Finn was just this amazing little boy and there was a shop in North Beach called Rosalie's New Look and it was like a crazy drag queen wig shop with these great pastel Marie Antoinette wigs and little Finn would stand in front of the window and gaze at them forever and we're like oh my god this I think this little boy's gonna be gay he loves these wigs and his mother we told his mother and she was like oh my god I know he's like so into it I should just have a drag queen to his party he'd be so happy and I was like oh why don't drag queens do parties like why aren't drag queens around kids more I mean kids love to play they love dress up they love fantastical creatures that's drag queens so um what's really amazing is that that kid is now at 15 16 years old and he is a drag queen oh, wow. and his name yeah his name is Finn Bunting and he did his first public drag at drag queen story hour at drag con last year um so it's really he was a big inspiration for it and now he's you know he's been a part of it so what's it like been to see the Drag Queen Story Hour, which the idea began with you, mm -hmm. become regionalized. We're seeing it in different cities around the world yeah. taking taking flight now. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's like, it's in Germany, it's in France, it's in the UK, it's in Brazil, it's in uh, Taiwan, it's in all kinds of places in the US. It's in like Brownsville, Texas, it's in Arizona, it's in Massachusetts. Um, gosh, it's just been amazing. I mean, I'm so happy that libraries and families and drag queens are like getting together all everywhere to make these things happen. It's, right. it's the coolest. I mean, librarians are the coolest, like most like stealth radical people in our culture, you know, like libraries, like they're socialist institutions. Like they're, think about it, you know, right. I mean, they're just the best places and librarians are such total freedom fighters. They're always fighting censorship and, and fighting for, you know, openness and acceptance and, and life. So it's been super cool. It's been a lot of work, more work that I kind of signed up for. Right. Um, but I have a helper in LA. My helper is Michael Royball Gonzalez and he, he helps me. I didn't know any drag queens when I moved here. So he does. So um, we've been working on it together. That's amazing. And to think kind of the parallels of taking Sister Spit on the road <laughs> yeah. and making it this kind of global punk collective experience. Yeah. And then to a generation later, create this thing that's for families. I know. I mean, you've you've really run across the spectrum of your work. It's really true. And all the while writing it all and, and sharing your stories. Uh, what have you, I normally at this point in the show would ask, what have you watched that's inspired you? And I'll ask if there are movies that you've seen recently that you like. But because I rarely get to sit with such a prolific and acclaimed author. Oh, no. What have you read recently oh, that you inspired? Oh, 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 oh. Um... 
Let me see. What have I read recently? Right now I am reading A Natural History of Love um, by, that's her name, Diane Ackerman, I think is her name. She's like a scientist and a poet. Um, it's good. It kind of got really straight for a minute where it's all like women like horses and men like fast cars, you know, and which kind of like put me off a little bit. They, it's, it could use a queer, a dose of queerness. Um, but for my dose of queerness, I'm also reading uh, an advanced copy of Thomas McBee's forthcoming book, Amateur. Mm-hmm. And um, Thomas McBee is a really great writer. He, he wrote a book called Man Alive, which is um, he's a trans guy. And before he transitioned, he um, was held up at gunpoint with his girlfriend by this guy who was a serial killer in Oakland, he, um, who was doing this. He, he found this out later, of course, at the mo- in the moment. He didn't know what was happening. He just thought he was going to be murdered. But this guy was doing this thing where he was accosting heterosexual couples in the street, separating the women and the men and shooting the men. And so that was basically what was going to go down. And then something about Thomas, he realized Thomas wasn't maybe male and he just told them all both to run and so he lived i'm getting chills it's like the craziest story and then he lived to be able to transition you know um so he's a really cool writer and then he went on to be like the first trans man to like be a boxer in madison square garden and so this book is about his like process of becoming a boxer and training and like this sort of intense like classic masculine like you know cliched almost masculine experience so i just started it it's super he's, he's a great writer that's really great wow those are both sound like great reads though yeah. uh to check out any movies that you've seen recently that you like i just saw the florida project last night um and i really liked it um i love kids i love willem dafoe i love florida i love stories about poor people so it was like pretty much a hit for me i thought the end was kind of terrible though it's very harrowing in a way the yeah. whole the whole movie what i had uh complete anxiety or agita as my grandmother would say <laughs> about during that whole movie is like how those kids are just like running around like in the driveway of the hotel yeah. I kept thinking the movie was gonna end no lie I was like white knuckling it on the theater seat when I saw it oh I was my like God. one of these kids is gonna get hit by a car and that's how this movie's gonna end oh like that's God. literally what I thought I, like I've become that old man on the that's porch so like funny. you kids need to get out of the road because <laughs> like, I was like so nervous. The whole I was time. a little nervous with the crossing the. Fr- they, there's some of the where they're on the freeway or something. Yeah. You know, I was a little more concerned with alligators sometimes when they were like. I like that you went to the extreme place, which is normally where I would go. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just have the very real fear of because well, I just thought it was sort of within the universe. It's like, oh, right. and then what's going to happen? One of these kids is going to get hit by a car. But what I thought was cool is that there weren't a lot. I mean, obviously there's huge repercussion, right, at right. the end. But at the same time, it seemed like. It didn't seem like a sort of like a cautionary tale. It didn't feel judgmental. Right. It was just sort of watching. Like I didn't. It was like, well, that does. That is what happens. It's like a basic cause and effect sort of thing with like the authorities getting involved with with the mom. But I never felt like the film was like judging her particularly or being like, huh, you hooker. Now your kids are getting taken away. Like not. You know what I mean? It was like there was just it was like there was a it was a step back from that, which I appreciated. You know, just like showing people trying to get by in this way. That Disneyland thing at the end, though, I call bullshit on that. Uh, I also wonder what Disney thinks of that movie. How did they do that? Like, did they just buy tickets and steal? Like, was like Sean Barker just like filming on his iPhone and nobody... I mean, short answer, if I'm just going to go from a producer standpoint, yeah, yeah. yes, like yeah. there's only, there's no other way they could have done that because I guarantee they didn't have the budget to shoot in Disneyland. And so let then alone- what happens when the film is existent and in theaters? Does Disney send a stop in... Like a cease and desist, or is it like, oh, you got us? Um, 
that's the interesting thing is because there's obviously the iconography of the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. I don't know how that works, but a lot of times when you steal shots, it's sort of like unless they catch you doing it, it's like, well, we already got it. So what are you going to do? That's cool. It's sort of like the Roger Corman school of things, uh-huh. as you know, I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, uh, I uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of finding ways to detour and get get shots. I was really excited about this scene that we stole in Release the Bats. Yes. Yeah. I was on set for that. Yeah, yeah. It felt really good to steal a scene. In a park. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Only, only minimal police involvement. <laughs> oh, right. You had to talk to the cops. <laughs> I, again, being the, in the protected uh, role of director, I never even knew that that happened until way after the fact. Oh, I guess at, the, at no point in this interview did we reveal that I actually worked on that project Michael with you. Michael is my amazing producer. He like, made it happen. <laughs> um, oh, it was, it was an amazing experience to be part of. I adore you, and I would love working with you. Uh, oh, and you had same. such a great same, same. team, uh, and I can't wait to see it. Me too. As a kid who... Uh, loves gothy things and Anne Rice and all matter of queer ephemera. Yeah, it's a it's about time we got the Michelle T vision oh. at the cinema. <laughs> uh, what are you working on? What's next? Uh, I have a book coming out in a couple of months called um, uh, Against Memoir. It's a collection of essays, mm-hmm. um, and one of those essays. Uh, it's called uh, The City to a Young Girl. It's the story of a court case around, about censorship that's, that, that happened in my city, Chelsea, Massachusetts, in the 70s about a poem that was written by a 15-year-old girl from New York City that was a very um, used a lot of rough language, frank language, talking about street harassment. And um, I'm going to write a screenplay. I'm going to write a feature based on on this. And I'm in touch with the woman who wrote the poem. Her name is Jody Caravaglia. She's incredible. She lives in Brooklyn. I'm going to see her and go through all of her ephemera. The guy who led the charge to um, ban the poem was this really this big creep um, who had been the mayor of the city and then and owned the newspaper of the city and then was on the board of education and he was also a known flasher. So he was a big sexual harasser banning a poem about sexual harassment. And the hero in the story is um, the librarian who actually refused to let them take the book and, and um, sued them. And it went all the way to federal court. So, so yeah, I'm going to be telling that story. A theme of this episode in our talk today has been the power of stories and the power of books and the power of libraries. And, but more so too is the, the idea that the second you try and restrict art, it only becomes stronger. Right. Totally. And if that's, you know, the moral of today's story, then who better to share it with than Michelle T? Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is so fun. I am so overjoyed you were able to make it. Uh, Where can people find you? You can find me. You can contact me at michellet.com. You can email me there through that website. Um, I get a public Facebook page, Michelle T. I'm on Instagram as Michelle T's, T-E-A-Z. I'm on Twitter as T. Michelle. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of easy to find. What I like, because you mentioned Instagram, I like that you recently discovered the world of Instagram stories. Oh my God. And now I'm addicted to it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I had some like millennials like give me a tutorial on how to actually use Instagram. I know I I love Instagram, but I don't do the stories. But it was funny when uh, we were on set of Release the Bats. I'd get in my car at the end of the day, and it would be like Michelle T has tagged you in like in her story, <laughs> in like six stories. <laughs> I know. Of course, I'm going to overdo it, you know, until I get bored of it. The novelty will wear off. What I loved about it though is like you were very covert. Like I was like, when did she take these? <laughs> oh, good. But you know, I felt like uh, it was so exciting for me, and then I also just felt like. 
I'm also the freaking director. I can't just be like, oh, where's Michelle? She's off doing an Instagram story <laughs> with the extras in that classroom, you know? So I had to be a little down low about it. It was great. Well, thank you so much for joining You're us today. You're so welcome. Thank you. Those of you out there in listener land, keep your eyes open for Release the Bats coming, I'm sure, to a festival soon near you. Oh, yeah. Check out Michelle's books. I just recently finished Black Wave. It was a revelation. Thank you. Uh, all of her novels and memoirs are amazing. She has done so much for the queer cause, for the punk cause, <laughs> and for the literary cause. Oh, my causes. Yes. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.